as we move toward uh, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, I want to talk to you about something we don't talk a whole lot about in the church. Uh, we certainly don't talk about it in the, uh, in, in outside of the church very much, and that is simply the virtue of humility. And more specifically, I want to talk about why I believe humility is so crucial in our relationship with God. If we really are going to have a walk with God, we have to stop and ask ourselves, Lord, am I humble? Do I have a humble heart? What exactly is humility? Let me give you a couple of scriptures. Psalm 25 says, God will give guidance to the humble. To the humble. Now, that kind of makes sense, right? I mean, he's not going to give guidance to somebody who he knows could care less what he wants them to do. But to the person who is humble, who comes before and recognizes their need of him, he says, I will guide you. Uh, let me ask you this morning, do you need guidance? Do you need guidance in any particular area of your life? Is there some area that's dysfunctional, some area that's less than what it ought to be? Well, the Lord says that he gives guidance to the humble. Psalm 147, God sustains those who are humble. Have you ever felt like you're running the gas? Have you ever felt like you're being stretched too far, like you don't have much energy or enthusiasm left? As people of God, we ought to be the most enthused people on this planet. But do you feel like you've kind of lost your excitement? You've lost your joy? Have you ever had those mornings when you wake up and it's like, I don't want to get out of bed this morning because I don't know how I'm going to face some of the challenges I've got to face. Don't know how I'm going to get through that. I had a day like that this week. I just kind of, I'd rather just sleep through this week. I'd rather kind of the issues go away. I don't know if I've got the energy to actually get up and face what I've got to face. We all have those times. Well, the Lord says, if you'll humble yourself, he will sustain you. Proverbs 22 God will enrich the humble. You know, so often Christian lives are just, I think the French word, plat. And I was going to say flat. That's not the English translation, but they're, they're dull. You know, they're just dull. They're like always the same. It's like we've plateaued. But the, but the Lord says, you know, if, if, if you're humble, if you have a humble walk with him, he will actually enrich your life. He will, he will deepen your life. He will, he will enhance your life. There's good things that he has for you if you are humble. And then 1 Peter 5 and 6, as well as many other places in the Bible, says that God will exalt the humble at just the right time, in due time. And then back in the Old Testament, Micah 6 and 8, we probably know this scripture well. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? God hasn't made it complicated. He hasn't made it complicated for us to know the abundant life that Jesus promised. He hasn't made it complicated for us, as Marcy was sharing, to be people who minister that life and joy of the Holy Spirit. He hasn't made it complicated. But he says, do you want to know how you move in that life? Do you want to know how you experience that freshness? No, it's not always easy. But yet it's a spring of living water that can well up with you all the time. He says, act justly, kindly. Love kindness and walk humbly with your God. Now, as I mentioned, humility is not something we talk a whole lot about today, and yet it seems to be a very distinctive quality for any person who honestly claims to be a child of God or a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, when the average person in our city thinks of a Christian, I wonder what traits come to mind. I wonder when they think of that Christian in the work workplace, and that might be you, or their neighbor who they see go to church on Sunday, that might be you. I wonder if the first quality they think of is, man, that person's humble. They're just a real, kind, just, humble person. 
I think it ought to be one of the distinctives of a follower of Jesus Christ. Our scripture this morning is Romans chapter 12. We're going to look at the first three verses. The first two we hear all the time. We don't tend to attack the third one on a whole lot. But I want to look at it this morning. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Here's what the Apostle Paul wrote. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. In other words, all this stuff that I'm asking of you, God will do in you by his mercy. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You think, we, we think we've worshipped this morning. Some of you have, some of you haven't. You know why? Because the Lord says, I'm not interested in you in just drawing near to me with your lips. Not interested in you just drawing near to me with your songs. That's good. What I'm looking for is the heart behind it. So I don't want your hearts to be far from me. The worship that I receive is the attitude of heart, the posture, the person who's walking in this way. Then when they say something, it, it warms my heart. I mean, isn't that true of us? If somebody either gives us a, a compliment or whatever, we, we measure it by who that person is. Not necessarily their status, but our relationship with them. If it's somebody that we know does love us, then we say thank you. If we know it's somebody who hates us, then we know it's a backhanded compliment, don't we? Or we know it's being sarcastic. It doesn't mean anything. It's empty. And the Lord is the same way in our worship. He says in verse 2, how do you do this? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Why? That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And here's verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Let me give you for this morning's purposes a working definition of humility. I would define it this way. Humility is a total reliance on God based on an accurate view of self producing a quiet confidence. Let me say that again. A total reliance on God based on an accurate view of yourself, which in turn produces a quiet confidence. Now, somebody has said, the moment that you think you're humble, you're not. The moment that you think you have humility, you've lost it. Now, that sounds reasonable, but I would disagree. And I disagree because... I believe you can have a quiet confidence that you're not taking credit for, but you know you have because of your reliance on God. Again, going back to what Marcy was sharing, we can minister to people in confidence, not because it's a self-confidence, look who I am, but because I can say as I step out to minister, Lord, I'm relying on you. This is all about you. And when it happens, you're going to get the praise. Whatever you choose to do, you will get the praise. Let me say this. Even if nothing happens, I tell you what will happen. The person will experience the touch of God. The person will experience the presence and the love of the Lord. All the Lord says is, I just want you to step out and minister. You don't know what's going on in their heart. You don't know where they are in their journey. I may choose to heal them right now. I may choose to do something else along this journey. All I'm asking you to do is to be my hand extended. Will you do that? Will you humble yourself and rely on me and step out in a quiet confidence in your relationship with me. So 
You don't lose humility if you think you're humble. In fact, there's a, a couple of myths about humility that I'd like to just kind of dispel really quick before we look into our scripture. Myth number one is that humble people have poor self-esteem. Humble people have poor self-esteem. I believe that's not true. I like what C.S. Lewis once said. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Isn't that good? It's thinking of yourself less. In fact, you can be aware that God is doing some wonderful things to your life without becoming proud because you know that everything is flowing from your reliance on Him. So you don't have to have poor self-esteem to be humble. Myth number two, humble people are unaware of their abilities and they have very little ambition. I found it's the opposite. In fact, humble people are very aware of their abilities but they are very appreciative of where those abilities come from. And on top of that, hear me, when you become a Christian, when you become a child of God, and, and becoming a Christian is not just believing a different set of values or a different religious belief. Becoming a Christian is having a personal relationship with God, your Creator, by receiving Jesus into your life. And what do you do? You say, Jesus, I recognize I don't know God. I recognize my sin separates me from God so that I can't look up at him. I'm just kind of always walking through life with my head down, doing the best that I can. But I thank you because you took the punishment for my sin. I can take that gift from you by faith. You will wash away my sins, and then you come and live with me. That's what Jesus said. He said, I will come and live within you. The Holy Spirit will come and live within you. My Father will come. We will make our home in you. And when that happens, you realize something. I now have supernatural abilities, right? Now, if I ask Pastor Kristen to come on this platform and to spar with me, okay, he'd probably knock me out in a couple punches, maybe just one. I'm being very kind. But... What if somehow I could get Bruce Lee to live within me? Right? No contest. No contest. And so you see, as people of God, again, going back, it just ties in beautifully, Marcia, some of the stuff you're sharing, but it just kind of goes back to that if I truly understand that Jesus has come to live within me, then I recognize, wow, there's a whole lot of things I could never do, but now Christ in me I can do, and he's asking me to actually do those things. So you're not actually less ambitious if you're humble. You're even more ambitious because God's presence enables you to raise the bar and do some pretty amazing things. And it may not only be in some of those more spectacular things. I find just, you know, if you have Jesus in you, he will give you more compassion than normally you would have. Rather than not wanting to get involved in the situation or not caring, the Holy Spirit will prompt you and say, would you let me love them through you? Would you take time and invite them for a meal, have a coffee? Would you take time to get involved in that situation? I'll never forget, and I think I've shared this story probably a few years ago, true story, because half the ones I tell are lies, but this one's true. Just kidding if you're visiting. Just waking you up. But Vanessa and I were visiting a Christian lady once years ago in another church. And she began to talk about the neighbor next door whose husband had left. She has a couple kids, real messy situation. And her words were this, you know, it's a shame, but I just don't want to get involved. Now, before we boo her, 
we kind of do that in different ways too sometimes, don't we? We kind of turn a blind eye whatever, because we don't want to take the time. We don't want to get involved. So you see, in whatever way it may be, small or great, behind the scenes or not, the Lord wants us to be ambitious if he truly dwells within us. And again, he can do some pretty amazing things. So that's another myth. And a final myth is that humble people don't need affirmation. Now, the truth is humble people don't seek after affirmation as the motivation for what they do, but we all need to be affirmed. And in fact, if you read through Nehemiah, one of my favorite Old Testament uh, books, in fact, the name Nehemiah actually means comforter. And so in the story of Nehemiah, we see the ministry of the Holy Spirit just rebuilding that human personality. But it's interesting that in Nehemiah, I think it's around chapter 3 or 4 there, he actually, as the people are rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, you can imagine the work, if you've ever seen the walls of Jerusalem, but rebuilding the walls, he actually begins to call out individuals and names and clans and families. He begins to call them by name. Why? Because he's cheering them on. He's recognizing the hard work that they are doing. He's affirming them. And friends, the Holy Spirit will affirm you. He will affirm you as you give yourself to what he's calling you to do. There's nothing wrong with affirmation. So those are a few myths about humility. But let me give you just two keys for true humility. As, uh, if, if, if they're going to be a defining quality of our life as a follower of Jesus Christ, as people of the cross, as we move through this Lenten season. Number one of the two is simply this. Avoid making comparisons. If humility, true humility, is going to be a quality of our life, avoid making comparisons. In Luke chapter 18, we read this. Luke says that Jesus told this story to some people. Why? People who thought they were very good and looked down on everyone else. So he has the motivation for sharing this story. And he goes on to say, a Pharisee that is a religious leader and a tax collector both went to the temple. By the way, in case you didn't know, tax collectors were really hated back in the day. Not like the, you know, Revenue Canada that we love today. But, you know, back in that day, they just had a bad name. Uh, my, how things have changed. So, in verse 10, he says, the Pharisee and a tax collector, they both went to the temple to pray. The Pharisee stood alone and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people who steal, cheat, or take a part in adultery, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give one-tenth of everything I get. The tax collector, standing at a distance, would not even look up to heaven, but beat on his chest because he was so sad. He said, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Did you catch that? Have mercy on me, the sinner. He didn't say, have mercy on me, a sinner. In other words, he wasn't saying, okay, Lord, I fess up. I know I'm not perfect. You know, I know I'm a sinner. But in the back of my mind, I can think of worse people. You know, you're, you know, you're lucky to have me. I know I've got my faults. You know, nobody's perfect. But, you know, because we do that, don't we? You know, Lord, forgive me for, but in the back of my mind, but, you know, I haven't killed anybody, not yet, whatever. We, we kind of have all these categories. And so, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't seek to justify himself. He doesn't compare himself to anybody, but he says, forgive me the sinner. He only saw one sinner in that, in that service, not comparing anybody else. Forgive me the sinner. And Jesus goes on to say this in verse 14. I tell you, and he says that, you know what he's saying. He says, catch this, don't miss it. When this man went home, read it with me, he was right with God. But the Pharisee was not. All who make themselves great 
will be made humble. But all who make themselves humble will be made great. If you humble yourself, God will lift you up. If you recognize your need to be reliant upon God, He will establish a quiet confidence within your heart that will enable you to be everything He wants to be and do through you. There was a survey not too long ago of 820,000 high school students. 820,000. This was in the U.S. And the question that was asked was this. Do you think you are above average or below average in your ability to get along with others? Now, the very fact that they were asked, do you think you're above average or below average, should mean the results would be kind of evenly spread out. You know, you'd have probably half of them on top or close to, half on the bottom, because we're asking for the average. Okay, 820,000 students. Do you think you're above average or below average in your ability to get along with others? Now, I want you to think for a moment in your mind, how many high school students of that 820,000 do you think, what percentage of those students do you think actually thought they were below average in their ability to get along with others? Just have a number in your mind. How many think probably 50% thought they were below average? Anybody think that? Maybe somewhere in the 25%. Yes, okay, we've got a few. 25% probably. How about maybe 10% of 820,000? Yes, a few more. Hold it. A bunch of you are holding out here. 820,000, 10%. How about maybe 5%? 3%? You know what? Less than 1% of 820,000 students actually thought they were below average in their ability to get along with others. And I'm talking teenagers, okay? No offense. But that's why they asked the question, you know? Because sometimes, typically, teenagers can be hard to get along with. Uh, not in this church but in other places. Um, any case, interesting, less than, less than 1%. Here's another interesting study, kind of similar. The Barna Institute, which is kind of a, a Christian-based uh, research group as well, they asked pastors if they felt above average or below average in their ability to teach the Word of God. Guess how many pastors indicated that they were above average in their ability to teach the Word of God? 90%. 90%. And this is coming from guys who preach from Romans 12.3. Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought. 90% felt they were above average. So what we're talking about here is what is known as self-serving bias. The self-serving bias is defined as the ability to see the deficiency in others while being blind to our own. The ability to see the deficiency in others while we are blind to our own. I think the best survey that I was reading in some of this research was this. That it said of the people who had the self-biased uh, theory explained to them, the majority rated themselves as above average in not falling prey to the self-serving bias. Isn't that interesting? Human nature. What does a self-serving bias do? The self-serving bias basically clouds our vision. It confuses our vision. That's basically what Jesus talked about, isn't it, in Matthew chapter 7 when he warned that we should not try to get the speck out of somebody else's eye. You get a little piece of something in there, let me help you, when you've got a plank in your own eye. Now, there's been a whole bunch of theories over the years, well, what exactly is that plank? 
It could be a number of different things. I think Dallas Willard a number of years ago uh, made a good point. He said, I believe that basically that plank is just our, our tendency to judge others. We're just so quick to judge other people because what keeps us from seeing our own shortcomings in our life or what keeps us always justifying our shortcomings is that we always compare ourselves with others. And friends, that's why it is so important, and we'll talk about it in just a second, why we have a walk with God in His Word, why we have times of quiet and solitude, times when the Holy Spirit can speak to us, because if not, we will never compare ourselves to Him, to the Lord. We'll always compare ourselves to others. And as long as you compare yourself to others, you'll always feel justified where you are and, and seldom have a motivation to ever make any changes or to be relying upon the Lord and to be humble. Uh, in most recovery groups, there are a number of steps uh, that people take as they move along the process. And I've, I've been told that usually the most challenging step lands around step number four. Now, there's different kind of addiction recovery programs. Let's take one we know really well, Alcoholics Anonymous. Step number four in Alcoholics Anonymous is this. Make a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Think about that. Make a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. That's a very important step because in the process, acknowledging uh, that not only do I have a struggle, but acknowledging that when I'm really honest with myself, that struggle is not the real issue in my life. There are things much deeper than that that actually become triggers that have caused me to turn to uh, self-medicating in whatever way it may be, in drugs, sex, alcohol, gambling, whatever it was. I was talking to a brother actually uh, last week, and he said he used to go to Gamblers Anonymous. Uh, we were talking about uh, Tim Hortons and the roll up the rim, uh, to win rim. And he said uh, one of the most frustrating things, is that I'd go there, there'd be like 30 or 40 guys drinking Tim Hortons coffee. They all picked up a, a coffee along the way to the meeting, but he said we weren't allowed or we were advised not to roll up our rim. So at the end of the meeting, to have 30 or 40 coffee cups in the garbage can, and nobody rolled up the rim. <laughs> so it was a real test, you know, to, uh, because you don't want to be a trigger to kind of start again. So I thought that was kind of fascinating, but he said, I always wondered how many cars were in that, were in that garbage can. But in any case, uh, making a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves, because what they understand is that if you actually will begin to deal with what is the root in your heart, what is the reason for some of these addictions and these manifestations of brokenness and, and bondage, then you can actually begin to address the symptom and begin to, begin to find freedom. Make a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Now, I don't know about you, but I have no problem whatsoever making a, a, a fearless or searching inventory of my wife. I'm really good at that. Anybody? We're really good at doing that with our spouse. We're really good at, you know, a searching, investing, real inventory with our fearless inventory with our coworker, or with our, our neighbor, or whoever the person may be, some other relationship, but we're not very good at taking those inventories in our own life. And yet, we see the key to humility is an accurate view of ourself. That's really where it all begins, because if we don't see our own deficiencies, and here's the key, folks. If we don't have a way of seeing our deficiencies, we will never be reliant on God. We will never depend on Him. We will never turn to Him in a recognition of our need for Him. I mean, you think of somebody like, like Job who said, Lord, I've, I've esteemed your word as more important than even my daily food. Uh, that's, just not, you know, that's just not literature. That, that's, that's, that's his heart crying out. 
you know, David said, apart from you, O Lord, I have no good thing. You know, when he, when he sinned, what did he say? He wasn't worried about losing his kingdom. He wasn't worried about losing his retirement plan. He wasn't worried about losing his possessions. He said, oh God, whatever you do, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. You can have everything, but God, I need you. You are the one who's given me everything that I have, and whether I have this or not, I love you for you. Please don't leave me. Don't walk away from me. That's why humility is so important, because without it, we don't have a reliance on God. We are so self-sufficient. And here, my friends, if you feel self-sufficient this morning, it is an illusion. It's what is called pride. Pride is at the root of all of our sin. And pride is the one thing that will keep your sin from being forgiven. Pride is the one thing that will keep you bound, that will keep your life dysfunctional, or that will keep you distracted from what really matters most and what you really can be enjoying in the kingdom and purposes of God. Pride will do that all the time. St. Augustine said this, It was pride that changed angels into devils. It is humility that makes men into angels. And so one key to making humility the defining quality of our lives as people of God is to avoid making comparisons. It's kind of interesting. There's no secular recovery program for prideaholics. There's no such thing. It doesn't work. But there is a spiritual recovery program. Because our pride, more than we realize, it is responsible for all the frustration and the emptiness and the pain. But there's a spiritual recovery program. The one part is not comparing ourselves to others, and finally, it also requires that we invite inspection. How many understand that inspection is not easy? Let's, you know, let's not pretend. It is not easy, to be honest. Before God, before people, it's not easy. We are all used to wearing the facades, but it's absolutely necessary. Vanessa and I have decided uh, recently, this last week or so, that we're going to get a little more serious uh, about our health. Actually, Vanessa has decided that I'm going to get more serious uh, about our health, <clears throat> and so uh, we have come up with a plan to get in shape. Uh, as you can see, we just started, <laughs> but uh, it's only been a week. Glad to report I got a few pounds gone. But one way that I do that is every morning I step on a scale. Now I know it's not just about weight. I understand that, but you know when you're a ton and a half, you got to start somewhere. You're looking for some kind of encouragement. And so I'm stepping on a scale, because what does a scale do? It gives you an honest assessment of where you are. You can't fake it. It kind of tells the truth, provided that it's accurate. But it gives you an honest assessment of your health. I actually read, and years ago when I was serious about weightlifting and stuff like that, there are actually clinics you can go to where they will immerse you in water, in this device, a tank or this device full of water, and they have all these mechanisms and, and probes and things like that and while you're under the water, it will actually give you an exact uh, percentage of how much of your weight is fat. You ever hear about those? I can't remember what they call them, but they, you know, they put you in the tank. Well, I can't afford that, so I come up with my own way. And what I do is I take a stopwatch. When I step out of the shower, I take a stopwatch. I stand in front of the mirror, and I stomp my foot real hard while I hit the stopwatch. And when the jiggling stops... I hit the stopwatch again, and I know what percentage is body fat. It works like a charm. I'm down to about a minute and a half, actually, in the first week. I've actually shaved off about 10 seconds. <clears throat> now, as you try to get that image out of your mind, 
Have you ever thought how wonderful it would be? But have you ever thought how wonderful it would be if you had a mechanism? Some of you are still, I think Randall's over there. I can't, it's still there. But if we had some mechanism to be able to accurately gauge our spiritual health, to actually gauge our Christ-likeness, to really gauge what virtues, what qualities define us as followers of Jesus Christ. If we had a means that would enable us to kind of break through just, you know, spiritually wearing the heavier sweaters or baggy shirts, you know, to cover it, and could really show us where we are and who we are as followers of Christ. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Well, there is a way. One is called the Word of God. I know we hear this all the time, but James says God's Word is like a mirror. And here's the beautiful thing about God's Word. You can look into it anytime you like. Anytime through the day or night, you can look into the Word of God. And it will show you exactly where you stand. In fact, Hebrews 4 and 12 says this, and I just paraphrase, but that God's Word has the ability to reveal every thought and every feeling in the deepest regions of our heart, and that nothing in this world is hidden from God. That's something, friends, that should not terrify you. It's something that should excite you. Because, you see, one of the reasons why you want to be in shape physically It's not because you're just conforming to some secular stereotype. It's not about body shape and size. It's about about health. It's about being where you ought to be in whatever way, whatever body type that you may have. But there comes a point where you're tired of not having the energy. You're tired of the little pains here and there. You're tired of knowing that you're, you're lethargic. You're living under your potential. That becomes your motivation oftentimes, sadly enough, when it should be just to be healthy for the purpose of honoring God, but whatever our motivation may be. And spiritually, it's oftentimes the same way. We come to a place where we say, I'm just tired of feeling blah. Yeah, I'm just tired of, of not having a living faith. I'm tired of, of being in the presence of the Lord in worship and, and not really entering in. Like, I'm here, but I'm not here. I'm, there's no real joy. I'm tired of the enemy, you know, always getting one over on us in our marriage. By the way, we have our you and me forever tonight for those who, who've signed up, and you're welcome to join if you haven't. But that's on this evening. The books are in the foyer after the service. But whatever it may be, we all may have areas where we just say, ah, I'm tired. But you know what you're really saying? You're saying this, I'm tired of being self-reliant. That's really what you're saying. I'm tired of being self-reliant. I'm tired of being proud and full of myself. I'm tired of trying to make it work myself. I'm tired of that. I recognize I've got to get serious with God who is serious about me and his plan for me. I've got to give it over to him. Whether it's physical healing in my body, whether it's emotional, whether it's in our mind, my relationship, my finance, whatever. Father, I recognize my life is not about life. And I, I, and I apologize and I repent and I recognize that I've allowed selfishness in and death in and darkness and decay and these things are described in different aspects of my life. Lord, I want to be alive and I want to have a heart that says, oh God, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. I haven't felt you for a long time, but don't leave me. That's what God's Word would do. But wouldn't it also be wonderful if you had somebody with whom you could be honest about those things that you saw in the Scripture if you had somebody that would actually hold you accountable to what you're reading, so that, that you'd actually begin to experience a, a measurable process of seeing things change and thing, seeing things progress. Well, once again, there is somebody. His name is the Holy Spirit. 
And you can ask him to show you anything in your life that he doesn't want there in any area where you need or think to, where you need to think or act differently. You know, I've never prayed that prayer without receiving an instant and specific answer from the Holy Spirit. I have never, I have never asked the Lord to show me, Lord, where is their darkness? Where is their blindness? Where is their selfishness? Where is their pride? Whatever. And sometimes it's almost embarrassingly too quick. Like, okay, no rush, Lord. Think about it. Don't have to. I've been looking at this for years. I've been talking about it for a long time. And he'll put his finger on that. He's faithful to do that. But I want to encourage you to understand that that kind of inspection is not about shame. I'm going to ask the worship team to, to join me. It's not about shame. It's not about saying I'm not good enough, I don't measure up. It's not about shame. It's about an accurate view of yourself that comes from being reliant on God and allows Him to establish in you a quiet confidence that you are who you are by the work of God. It's like that old saying, Lord, I'm not yet the person I need to be. But I thank you that I'm not the person I used to be. And we can say that along our journey. It's not, oh, I shouldn't be this, but you know, nobody's perfect. It's not that. No, it's, Lord, I'm still moving forward. I want to be the person you want me to be. But I just thank you for the victories along the way. And I thank you I can look back. And I'm not who I used to be. And my marriage is not what it used to be. My finances aren't where they used to be. And my children aren't where they used to be. Whatever it may be, I thank you, Lord, that there's progress. James says, God gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace. He gives grace to the humble. And grace is an active dynamic of power and presence of God in your life. That's what grace is. It's not just this wishy-washy, syrupy feeling. It's a power. That's why the prophet of old said, you can look at this mountain and just shout at it. Just say, grace. Speak to this mountain. Grace. It's all of God. But you see, it's only going to happen in the life of the person who will humble themselves. And the Lord says, if you will humble yourself, what's that mean? Not humiliate yourself. Humble yourself. Say, Lord, I need you. I can't do this on my own. Here's the mountain, but I say grace. The Lord says, I will exalt you. I will tear down the mountain. I will do the impossible. But you've got to stop doing it in your own strength. And you've got to stop saying to the Holy Spirit, when I come close to you, you've got to stop saying, Lord, you can come this close, but no closer. You can come in this part, but not that part. You've got to open your heart and say, Lord, I humble myself before you. I recognize my need of you, and I ask you to come. I ask you to search and probe and reveal. I ask you to break and forgive and cleanse. I ask you to restore. I ask you to heal and build up. And the Lord will do that. Will you bow your heads for me this morning? Heavenly Father, I thank you this morning. I thank you that when you came in your son, you came as one who was humble. You came as one who was meek, as one who was gentle. I thank you, Lord, for the power that is found in humility and in, 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 in confession and cleansing. And Lord, I just pray this morning that you would show each of us where it is that we are self-sufficient, where it is that we think we're all of that and we've got it together and we've got our plan and we're doing so great. I pray, Lord, as our sisters shared earlier, may the measure, Lord, of our true success be how much of your spirit is flowing in and through us, how much your kingdom is coming in our midst and around us, how much, O oh Lord, 
Your will that is perfect and pleasing is being done. Forgive us, O God, for so many distractions and things we give ourselves to that we can accomplish in the flesh. But Lord, they mean so little. They mean so little. I pray, O Lord God, that this morning you would break in many hearts here today that sense of being stuck, of being in a rut, at least in our spirit. There may be great success in the natural, but in our spirit, O God, I pray that we'd be honest enough to say, Lord, I don't have it together. Lord, forgive me. Come, cleanse me. I humble myself. I want that to be a defining quality of my walk with you and of my witness. In Jesus' name. Can we stand together? I'm going to ask the ministry team to come as we close. If you need to slip out, you're dismissed. The Lord bless you. It's so nice to have you with us today. But if you want to take five minutes and just come, I'm going to ask the ministry team if you'd come right now at this time. And as they come, as we begin to play and you're dismissed, if you're here this morning and you've never humbled yourself before God, again, He's not humiliating you. He's asking you, will you acknowledge your need of me? If you will, open your heart. I will come in. Don't try to figure out how it's all going to happen, how I'm going to fix everything. I just want to start with a relationship with you, and I'm going to unfold. It's going to blossom over time. If you're here this morning, you've never opened your heart to Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to come, and one of these folks would love to share with you and pray with you. If you have sickness in your body, why don't you come? If you have dryness in your spirit and say, it's been so long since the Holy Spirit's welled up within me, I just need the river of the Spirit to flow afresh. I want to invite you to come. We want to pray for you that God would release that, and He would just do a work in you that... Humanly, you can't do in years, but he can do in a moment just by the touch of the Holy Spirit. So as Pastor Christian leads us, we want to invite you to come. If you need to slip out, feel free. But if you want to come, we're here to, to minister. God bless you as you come.